Hi, welcome to the Newberry Chronicles, a podcast in which two people read through every single Newberry Medal winner, uh, and then we talk about it. I'm Michael. And I'm Rebecca. And this time on the Newberry Chronicles, we're gearing up for a real exciting one, folks, um, with 1957's medal, uh, Miracles on Maple Hill by Virginia Sorensen. And let me tell you, it is a thrill ride. You'll never know what's going to happen reading this book. What's the next miracle going to be? Hard to tell. <laughs> we hated this book. That's spoiling it. That's well, not okay. giving our listeners a thrill ride, Rebecca. Okay. Um, at any rate, um, I'm the one who gets to talk about the author bio this time. But before I do that, don't forget that if you have feelings uh, about what we had to say this time or any other time, you can always email us at newberrychronicles at gmail.com. Uh, in which uh, we will read your, your emails that you send us. So if you think Miracles on Maple Hill is actually good, um, then you can email us there and tell us why we were wrong. At any rate, um, it's my turn to do the author bio. That's correct, right? Mm-hmm. Good, because that's what I prepared for. Um, anyway, this is another one of these books where I think the author bio is actually more interesting than the, the book itself. Um, so anyway, Virginia Sorensen um, was not actually born Virginia Sorensen because Sorensen is a married name. Um, she was born uh, in 1912, um, and her name was Virginia Egertson. Um, and uh, her parents were descended from Mormon pioneers. She was born in Utah and um, grew up in like you know adjacent to Mormonism. And I say adjacent to is because it sounds like her family had kind of drifted away from the faith. Um, her mom wasn't even Mormon at all um, by the time that she was born. She was Christian science. Um, and then her dad was what's called a Jack Mormon, which is like a guy who's not formally baptized into the church. Um, do they baptize people? Mm-hmm. Not form- Yeah, okay, not formally baptized into the church, but still like running in the same crowds and communities. So um, she kind of grew up that way as well, um, basically, you know, being in Mormon communities, but not being very pious or devout. Um, and so, um, she went to BYU, uh, met her husband, whose first name I don't remember, but whose last name was Sorensen, where she got <laughs> this name. Uh, the first of two husbands, this husband died at some point, I believe, uh, and she married another guy, but neither of them are very important to the story. Um, but uh, she uh, studied journalism, got a degree in journalism, but eventually became an author and published her first novel in 1942. Um, it was called A Little Lower Than the Angels, um, and it was like historical, a historical novel um, that dealt with Mormon polygamy. And um, apparently this earned her like skepticism from Mormons, even though she wasn't really trying to be um, anti-Mormon. Apparently some people considered her to be that. Um, and so she's what's, she's what's known as like a part of the lost generation of Mormon writers. Um, they, so apparently like in the 1880s, like once like their, um, settlement in Utah became kind of stable, um, you know, you started having people write, um, Mormon fiction and, uh, it, from then on, like it apparently became encouraged that, uh, Mormon writers kind of wrote for the community um, they called it home, what is it? They called it uh, home literature. Basically, this would be like kind of devotional works that were intended to be read like within Mormon households and within the community, not intended for like broader, um, you know, secular or non-Mormon um, 
audiences. And so for a long time, there was no real Mormon literature outside of that. Um, but in like the mid-20th century, some writers started kind of uh, not wanting to do that anymore and actually started seeking national attention um, and trying to publish through like, um, you know, mainstream presses and that sort of thing. And um, usually doing so, they ran afoul of the church in some way. And so um, that's why they were called the Lost Generation is that they were kind of not viewed very kindly by um, the Mormon establishment. And uh, Virginia Sorensen was just that. Um, I guess she wrote a lot about Mormons because I, I suppose that's what she knew. Um, but uh, there's this quote on her Wikipedia page, which I think is kind of uh, funny because of how blunt it is. She says, As a writer and as a person, I can honestly say that I am not particularly interested in Mormons. Um, and so... Uh, she didn't continue to write about Mormons eventually. Um, she eventually got into children's literature and wrote Miracles on Maple Hill, um, which is not about Mormons as far as we know. Um, there's not a ton of references to religious faith in general, despite Miracles being in the title. Um, but uh, she moved around a lot. Like her first husband was a, um, became a professor at like uh, Indiana State University. So they moved to Indiana and then eventually she moved to Pennsylvania, to Erie, Pennsylvania, um, which is, like, her experiences there were kind of the basis of this book, Miracles on Maple Hill. Um, and then she, um, after a couple other moves, went to North Carolina, which is where she died in 1991. So, um, yeah, that's uh, Virginia Sorensen, kind of an exciting life, um, being kind of on-again, off-again relationship with the Mormon Church, Church of Latter-day Saints. Yeah. Tell us about right. Miracles in Maple Hill, Rebecca. It's your turn to describe this rip-roaring plot. Well, um, so this book starts out, and I thought it was going to be a very different book than it was, um, because it, it starts out with you learning that Marley's father has... Marley being... The main character. I'm sorry. This book is told... Um, it's It's... Told in third person, but mainly through the perspective of Marley, who is a 10-year-old girl who lives with her mom, dad, and her brother, Joe. That sounds right. Joe? Joe's kind of a tool. Our buddy Joe? I didn't... Well, we'll talk about that later. Um, anyway, Marley's father has recently returned from the war where he was a prisoner of war. And he's... Um, this is probably the Korean War then, I guess? Maybe. 1950s. I don't think there's ever a date given for, like, yeah. the setting of the book. but A war. They don't specify it. Um, anyway, so he's suffering from mood swings and depression, uh, what we would call now PTSD. Um, and he's just really tired. So Lee, Marley's mom... Um, moves the family temporarily to Maple Hill. It's a town where her grandparents lived and she visited often as a child and um, just talks very lovingly about this place um, in rural Pennsylvania. Because they live in Pittsburgh, right? I think so. Which they think is the... The book goes out of its way to describe how horrible it is living in Pittsburgh for them. Like, they just hate it. Except for the brother who likes the museums. I, that wasn't really my impression, but I, I do know it's not, they, they frame it as not being good for their dad. And her mom thinks that this place will, will heal him. It will be 
um, just a different setting. Miraculously heal him, you might say. Right. So they are going to Maple Hill temporarily. Um, They meet neighbors there who Marley already knows just from her growing up, the Chris's. Um, they, Wait, Marley's mother. I'm Marley. sorry. I'm sorry. Lee, Marley's mother, already knows them from growing up there. Um, I'm asking questions not to be rhetorical, but because I actually can't remember what happens in the book. So <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, listeners, sorry, for I'm my not, questions. Okay. So anyway, the Chris's, they make their living with maple syrup. And Marley and her brother end up loving living in the country. They'll go back and forth to the city, but they leave their dad there, and he's fixing up the farmhouse that they're living in because it's really dilapidated. He starts a garden, all of these things, and they slowly start to see their dad really take to um, take to Maple Hill and, and end up falling in love with um, just the simple life is kind of how they frame it. Um Anyway, so eventually the family decides to stay there um, permanently, um, and the kids start going to the local schools. Um, they meet another neighbor, the man with the goats, Henry. Is that his name? The hermit. The hermit. I hope it's Henry. Henry the hermit has a nice <laughs> ring to it. Guys, I'm sorry we we didn't we did not I guess pay attention enough. Also. Or, this is one of these situations where we read this book a while ago and yes. haven't had a chance to record. They meet the hermit that we'll just call Henry, and that might not be his name. Um, and he makes his living um, from goats. He raises goats. He makes goat milk and goat cheese. And Joe, um, Joe is his name, the brother's name. I'm seeing it. Joe ends up really taking a liking to him and enjoying his company. We find out that... Um, the Chris's were very kind to him when he first got to Maple Hill, and um, so he returns their kindness to them. Um, and then the book's, I guess, climax, you would say, is Mr. Chris has a heart attack during sugaring time, which is the busiest time of the season, and um, Marley's whole family and other neighbors and the school children <laughs> all step in to save the day. And kind of the end of the book is they think, oh, it didn't have Mr. Chris's magic touch. It's not going to be the same, and he can't tell any difference, and that's the last The miracle. maple syrup. Yeah. Yeah. What did I say? You just didn't. You said it. <laughs> okay. I didn't think the maple syrup would taste the same, and then the last miracle of Maple Hill is that he could not tell any difference in the maple syrup. Yeah, the whole book is framed around, like, not whole book, but a lot of the book is framed around Marley seeing these little things that she calls miracles. And so there's like, those are the miracles in the title. And so the last miracle is not him surviving a heart attack. It's that they can't tell the difference between his... It's Harry the Hermit, not Harry Harry the the Hermit. That's almost as good as Henry. And this, Wikipedia says that her dad is a World War II veteran, but I'm wondering if they just surmised that. Because I I don't remember that ever. I mean, it doesn't really make a difference on the book itself. It doesn't. Um, but that that is the I'm sorry that that was a bit convoluted. But. There's not a lot going on. It's it's a very like stereotypical like family. It's almost like a Hallmark Channel kind of thing where it's like fa- family leaves the city and finds the pure rural ways and is like, wow, how could we ever go back to the city with rural life being so pure? Yes. 
Yeah, and there's a lot of description in the book about the sugaring process and about the making of the maple syrup, which I kind of thought was interesting. I've never seen it's that one of the miracles. Before. It is. Um, I have I have a semantic bone to pick with the miracle terminology, which is that none of these things are supernatural or even out of the ordinary. Like they're just ordinary things, and Marley says, "Wow, it's another miracle." I don't really understand the hyperbole. I do feel that some of them are not. Like, I think her dad's healing is something that people would would call a miracle now. Just like if you had PTSD and then all of a sudden you didn't, you know? That's true. But others of it are like, she watches the sugar-making process, and there's one part where they're boiling down the nectar, um, Mm -hmm. or the sap, excuse me, um, and the sap is bubbling up, and this guy has like a little like brush that he flicks like cream on top of it and it makes the bubbles go down. And she's Mm -hmm. like, she refers to that over and over again in the book as miraculous. And I don't really understand. That's kind of cool. That's a nice nifty technique, but like miracle doesn't, I'm just saying this to say, what did you like about this book, Michael? I did like, so as a prelude to the things I didn't like, I hate stories in which people go to nature and think that it's pure. Like, I just can't stand that kind of... It's not that nature isn't wonderful, um, but this idea that, like, it's somehow more pure to live this, like, rural, quote-unquote, simple life. And it's not really simple living out in the country. Like, it's really complex to live off the land and all that stuff. But what I liked is that there's parts of the book that are at odds with that idea. Like, um, there's a thread in the book where Marley is really conscientious of living things and doesn't like to see them killed. Um, which, of course, if you're living, like, in a traditional kind of, like, farm situation is tough because, you know, they kill lots of animals on a farm, especially if you need them for, like, subsistence and stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, hunting and all that sort of stuff. And there's this one extended sequence, which I actually thought was the best chapter in the book, um, where she finds this uh, fox den. And is like, it's like a fox, uh, like the fox parents. I don't know if there's a the gender of the parents, but, and then little, little kits or kittens or what is it? Is that what they call or pups? Are foxes pups or kits? <laughs> little baby know. foxes. And she thinks it's so wonderful. And she, and she goes home and tells her brother like, Oh wow, I just found these foxes. And he's like, Oh yeah, that's cool. And they go see it. And then they go home. And then she, her parents are like, they're with the Chris's cause they're always with the Chris's. And her parents were like, well, what'd you guys do today? And they're like, we found these foxes. Um, or no, no, Marley is like, we found these foxes and the brother's like, shh, don't tell him that. Mm-hmm. Because he knows that um, the uh, the Chris's are going to go hunt them. Because the foxes kill their Because chickens. they're a pest. Mm-hmm. Um, Specifically because they kill their chickens. Right. And so this is obviously really upsetting to Marley because she thought this is this wonderful fox family and she has inadvertently caused their demise or thinks that they're going to cause this demise. So her and her brother are like, conspire to like chase the foxes away so they can't be caught Um, and I think it's really interesting because it's it like presents this tension like is nature this idyllic you know Edenic state you know is Maple Hill this pure place of like you know um, joy and like you know back like a return to Eden sort of thing which is how a lot of the book presents it Um, or is that merely like a first impression that will later become more complicated as, you know, they have to live life there rather than simply vacationing there at the beginning. Um, 
And unfortunately, the book only follows that thread up a couple of different times. Like, there are a few different times when um, Marley seems at odds with, like, the ethos of, like, the kind of, like, prevailing wisdom of Maple Hill. Uh, and it always involves killing of, like, animals and stuff. You know, just the kind of inherent, um, just the inherent brutality of having to live rurally, you know, where, you know, you're distanced from that in a lot of modern life. You know, you go to the supermarket and here's your eggs, here's your chicken breasts or whatever. You know, you don't really have to confront the kind of brutality of, like, how it, how we get those things. But when you're living on a farm and there's not someone else doing that for you and they just have to do it in front of you, like, you have to really, you know, think about, like, oh, wow, you know, the stuff that I eat and all this stuff comes at this cost of labor, this cost of life, of the animal, um... And I think that there's a few parts in the book that are really interesting that really go into that. And I really liked that. Um, not all of the book is like that. But I think that if I had to single out like my one like positive, it's like those moments, and especially the little fox uh, vignette, that I really liked and thought was interesting. What did you like about this, Rebecca? Well, I did like seeing things through Marley's eyes. I think that's the only way that you have the wonder of this book, is seeing it through the eyes of a 10-year-old and... Um, at the beginning, she's really excited to go to this place because you can tell that the tension between her parents is very, very thick. And her mom has talked lovingly about Maple Hill, and there's this like little phrase that they use, like, it's all outdoors out here, or something like that, which I thought was a weird phrase. But Marley loves that story, and she asked her mom to tell it to her over and over again. So I, I, I think that... Virginia Sorensen kind of captured that in the heart of a child of like there's this really cool place that we're gonna go and maybe my dad will get better but even if he doesn't it'll be a new place for me that my mom has talked about with love and um just kind of seeing that wonder through her eyes I think I think that's well done um and I liked I liked the setting of it being in rural Pennsylvania and the the farmhouse I think that imagery was really strong and maybe just because I really like um, like northeastern United States, I think is really pretty, and so I was just imagining that. The only part of Pennsylvania I've ever been to is Philadelphia, so I can't confirm or deny how so beautiful you've just been upstate in that, Philadelphia. In that terrible city is why they don't refer to Philadelphia. They just no, have I'm a problem just with Pittsburgh. The city in general, but I. I just don't remember Pittsburgh being described as very negatively, but I guess... I think you're right that it's mostly described as negative for the family, but... For the dad. For the dad, but also for the family. They talk about how, <clears throat> like, all the people and, like, oh, you know, there's noise and... You know, they do all the things mm -hmm. that people usually complain about with cities, except they don't mention crime or race, probably because it's a kid's book, but... Well, yeah, so those are the things that I liked. Um, I liked what you described too. The those scene, the scene with the mice in the beginning, was another one of those moments. Yeah, where, you're right. I forgot about that. Yeah, and that's kind of the first time that we see Marley really loves these living animals and thinks she they she thinks they're really cute, and her parents want her to kill them. And yeah, and that set me up to think that like this is a thread that's going to develop mm -hmm. throughout the story. Right. And it kind of does intermittently, but it doesn't ever go anywhere. It doesn't develop past what's initially presented. Right. By the way, there's fireworks going off because we're recording this on Memorial Day. So, um, yeah, just if, if any 
listeners are concerned that there's a battleground that we're recording in. Um, no, we're not war correspondents. Um, we are simply living during an American holiday. What did you dislike about this book that you've not already shared? Everything else. Or do you want to sum else. up what you said already? I thought, one, this book was boring. Two, this book doesn't really have great character development outside of, like, a few moments. Like, there, it's mostly, like, little vignettes about, like, oh, we're doing this, and we're doing this, and that's fine, except it doesn't build to anything except this right. climax with Mr. Chris having a heart attack, which is very typical, like... There's so many children's lit stories that build to a tragedy mm-hmm. or something scary, a brush with death or whatever. And that's fine. But, and there's like a few things like earlier on in the book where like Mrs. Chris is like, you really shouldn't be doing this. You're exerting yourself too much. And, you know, it's like kind of foreshadowed. So it's not like it comes out of nowhere. But like, what's the point? Like, it's nothing except to find a high note to end this book on. There's nothing that people learn from this book, except like they do the sugaring process by themselves. But like that sugaring process doesn't, it doesn't fulfill any meaningful character arc. It just shows that like, oh, now they're people, you know, they're, they're Maple Hill people too. They've come, they've arrived that now they can sugar as well as a native. And. Well, I think that scene is trying to tell us more than just like what they've learned to do as a native. I think it's, that whole sense of community that their mom left the city for to find in the country, like that's what they find with the Chris's and with Harry the Hermit and with, you know, the school, being able to convince the school that they're not just true. I think that that's what that scene is supposed to do. I do think that's funny. There, If I had to say another part, there's a scene in which um, the truancy officer visits their house because it's been sugaring season and they've not... Um, well, it's not school. just because it's sugaring season. It's because Mr. Chris has had right. a heart attack. Right, and so all the kids have had to step up. And so they have to prove to the truancy officer that, like, hey, this is actually educational, what we're doing. And then the truancy officer becomes, like, an, like obsessed with the sugar-making process uh, or the sugaring process, the syrup-making process. And so then the whole field school comes on a field trip uh, and helps them finish the sugaring. I like that. That was a fun little scene. Yeah. Um, so, but... Okay, so I I agree with what you just said about that. However, I don't think that that, that, that's so, that's a very abstract thing. Like, this community, like, the thing, the people we see time and time again with them are the Chris's, who are largely absent from that climax because they're at the hospital. Right. Um, and the the broader community, like the school and everything, like we've heard that they've been going to school, but like we've not had personal connections with those. Yes. And so it doesn't, it feels like a sort of like, it's a wonderful life, the whole town comes together moment, except what's moving about like it's a wonderful life is we see all these faces that we recognize coming in and helping George Bailey. But in this, we see all these people coming in, but we don't know who these people are. It's just like, oh, all the kids from the school came. I wish we knew anything about these kids from the school or, oh, these you know, we, we'd never met this truancy officer before. Um, but uh, anyway, so I, I, I didn't like, I'm fine with the story being purely episodic. I'm fine with the story like building to some sort of like, you know, brush with death. Like that's what so many children's books do, especially older children's books, like kind of like climactically end with some death or illness. Um, I just don't think that like, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything with the episodic structure that makes sense with the like the death or the, the threat of death. He doesn't actually die. Um, 
so I, I don't like that. Um, I think the prose is boring. Like, it's very yeah. prosaic. Um, <laughs> the prose is prosaic. Yeah, the prose is prosaic. I, I said it here first. Um, but, um, you know, the the imagery, the natural world imagery is is wonderful to imagine, but it's it's so simplified, and it's not simplified in a very artful way. It's simplified in a way that, like, feels like a like a kind of thing that would be in like an elementary school textbook as opposed to like an artfully done story. And again, that's fine. You don't need like poetry and like children's books all the time. But like, I just can't find anything to grasp onto besides the things I've already said that mm-hmm. is enjoyable. And like I said, like, I just have an innate allergy to this, <laughs> this type of story because this is very much a type of story. Like there is a genre of storytelling that's both in, that's both literary and like cinematic like, there's so many stories where it's, like, the big city is so gross, but then they go to the country, and it's so pure and quaint, and they love it, and it f- fixes all their problems. Like, I just don't like that kind of story. I think it's simplistic. I think it's not something I particularly relate to. Um, I think it's 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 saccharine, and, like, I just don't, I just don't like it, and... But I mean, the biggest the biggest crime was that this book was just boring. Like, I did not find very much interesting in this book. It reminds me a lot of, um, in some ways, it reminds me a lot of the like Laura Ingalls Wilder books in the sense of it's very obsessed with like process and discovery of like you know a certain way of life. And I frequently found the Laura Ingalls Wilder books kind of boring too for that same reason. But the thing about the Laura Ingalls Wilder books that's different from this is that there's genuine danger, and I mean they're kind of like aiding a genocide in some of the so you know like they're like uh they're tough you know they're they're tough books that deal with kind of like complicated history whereas this has none of that like this is if you like the scenes in which like Pa Engels you know builds a barn and they describe for 15 pages all the process of him how he built a barn and then at the end Laura's like boy this sure was fun building that barn but now I'm tired and it's a good night's sleep because we had hard work like, if you enjoyed that part of the Laura Ingalls Wilder stuff, then that's what this book is distilled to me. Yeah. I agree with all that. Um, one, you've kind of, like, alluded to this, but what I really didn't like is that I kept, I kept feeling like there was all of this tension. There, there would be these bouts of tension that we thought was going to really, like, work. Right. We're going to spend a lot of time with it in the book, and then it was really anticlimactic in its resolution. And a few of those are the main theme is with her dad. You know, right? Like, he's just instantly I, fixed by Maple I Hill. I thought this book was really going to deal more in depth with his PTSD and with his relationship with his family, um, and how that's been altered and how they work through that and grow through that. But you don't even get to see him heal. You don't get to see that happen because they go they back drop, to Pittsburgh. They go back yeah. to Pittsburgh. They come back. Their dad started a garden. And he's feeling better. And here they are. Which which I will say one thing I forgot to say, a scene that I really liked was when he and Marley were cooking the pancakes together. I don't know if you remember that scene, but I thought that yeah. was a sweet scene. What had happened right like, before? That, that happens right. The pancakes are like, didn't something happen beforehand and then they make the pancakes together as like a resolution to it? it I can't remember, but... Um, but I, maybe, but I just remember, I think she thought she was going to be in trouble because she was like burning it up and he's like, oh, this is how you got to make pancakes and yeah, they just end up yeah. doing it together. So they're like sweet scenes like that, but 
the book does not does not invite us on this journey to deal with these hard things like in the moment. It's very much like, okay, we're in this place and they're better. That's what and, makes it feel so saccharine to me right, is because like right. it evokes so, these serious things but then waves them away with the magic, the miracles, like right. which aren't really miracles. But, so yeah. some of the other moments like that is Mr. Chris is we find out in the beginning he's doing all this really hard work, but he's actually in very poor health and his wife doesn't want him to do it anymore. And so there's this tension between Marley thinks she's learning how they make the syrup, she's learning about the sugaring season, and she is just eyes full of wonder. And then she hears Mrs. Chris say, I hate sugaring season. I hate this. You know, he's he's like, you know, gonna gonna die, basically. I don't think she says that, but you know, she's indicating that this is really bad for her husband's health. This means of their survival. So you get those little bits of that ugliness and the, the harshness of this rural life, and then they don't do anything with it until the end. He just almost die in the end. I know, but I mean, like, you, it's never, the, the only resolution is that the syrup tasted just as good. I, I agree, right? Like, it's so it doesn't it's just, force them to confront their actual way of life and whether right. or not the Chris's have a sustainable way of life as they age. Right. And so, and again, another moment of that that you've already mentioned is this, like, Marley's love of animals and um, learning to balance that with an understanding of life on the farm. And also, the other anticlimactic part is, as much as they want to live at Maple Hill, they don't want to go to school there. Like, because there's a one-room school, and, you know, Joe loves his school in the city, and he... You know, I liked Joe, by the way. I thought he was fine. What? But we can talk about yeah. that in a minute. But, but like, so they're really scared about going to school and all these things. And then they find out that, oh, Joe actually gets to go yeah. to the big school. Surprise. And There's Marley, a secret, enormous school that you can go and, to. Right. And then Marley ends up being fine at school. And that's just, so you get all these moments where it's like, okay, maybe we're really going to work through this conflict now and see our characters grow. And then, like you said, it just waved away. Well, another thing is Joe is the the lone family member who does not actually want to move to Maple Hill because he actually likes city life. And they mention a lot of the things that you get in a city that you can't out there. And he mentions his school, Mm -hmm. but he also mentions the museums and the Mm -hmm. ball games and like the things that like are there in the city that like he doesn't think are there. And they end up convincing him and then that's it. Like, he doesn't have yeah. any regrets or anything. It's, like, perfect. He never expresses, like, that he he misses, like, I wish I could go to, you know, a Pittsburgh Pirates game again or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, there's, it, it's just, like, a moment. And then they're, like, oh, but we've moved on from that because this place is so magical that it fixes everything. I want to share one quote before we move on. I found this to be really funny. So, um, as we were looking on Wikipedia about this book, you hear about like how it was like had really strong reviews when it first came out, like a lot of praise for it. Um, and then there was this essay that a librarian wrote uh, retrospectively about Newbery winners from 1956 and 1965. And she said that this book seems to miss its objective because of a sentimental use of language. I know this author has written better books, and I just found that to be a great summary, but Michael believes that she hasn't written better I don't know. Books. Just looking at the titles, they just sound, <laughs> you know, they all yeah. sound kind of like this sort of book. It's not really a big point, but since we keep alluding to the fact that I don't like Joe, um, Joe is fine as a character, but, like, he's got that sort of, I don't know, 
like I've seen this kind of person in real life and they always irritate me where like boys have these big important things to do on the farm and like you can't be part of this because I'm a big important man. Like he's I got just, that sort I of like. I feel it was gendered as It much, is gendered. Which, but I felt like he just like to be like kind of a loner and explore. No, because he does stuff with Mr. Chris and he's like you can't do it because you're a girl. Like, he um, says that at multiple points in the early goings of the book. He well, just, I think I'm thinking about when he goes off and does his own thing. Like, he's usually just going yeah. off and doing his own things. Which he helps Harry, the hermit. Right. Which is nice. Like, right. Joe, Joe seems like a fine person in general, but he's got that kind of, like, irritating dynamic of, like, oh, I'm a boy, so I'm, I've got these, like, I've got this sense of grandeur on in this rural setting because yeah. my jobs are... I guess I read it more as his age than him being a boy, but you're probably right. I mean, maybe it's his age, too, but... Um, anyway, so I think we both can agree. Thumbs down. Yeah. Thumbs down. Siskel and Ebert give it two thumbs down. <laughs> um, you want to introduce our book for next time? Yes. So next time is a book that I already know I'll be giving thumbs up to because I read this book many times when I was a child. Um, and uh, But you've not read it I yet. Uh, so this book is um the we're so we're moving forward into the 60s again um and so this is the 1968 newberry medal winner uh which will be um from the mixed up files of miss basely frankweiler by e.l konigsberg i've never known how to pronounce this author's last name um but that book's good it's at least not boring um hopefully we'll finish it sooner than we did this one hopefully it is summertime i'm on summer break now from school so i got more time you got more time to be reading these boring Newberry books. <laughs> well, that's it. That's it. The real miracle is that we made it through this book. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Goodbye.